Our Father, we were not there when you laid the foundations of the earth. So we can only marvel as we consider your good created order. We were not there when you, in your Trinitarian love and perfection, anticipated that your good created order would be marred by sin. So we can only marvel that you would prepare a reconciliation for rebellious creatures. And we are not in heaven with you now as you show patience, as you wait for all of your children to be gathered to you. You restrain the final judgment, and we can only marvel at your long-suffering. Your patience goes beyond even our most generous ideas of mercy. Lord, your mercy is not an abstract idea or something that's extended only to those outside the church. It is a reality in our lives. So we can only marvel that you continue to grant us the opportunity and ability to repent. Even as the war between the law of life and the law of sin continues to rage inside us. Lord, we ask for the forgiveness that is provided in Christ to be applied abundantly in our lives. We need it desperately. We ask for your healing from the sin that dwells in us. Each of us needs it desperately. Father, let the good news of your triumph over our sin, your victory over the claims that death had on us, go out around the world and bring you glory. We thank you that this church is not alone in proclaiming your goodness here in the Willamette Valley. We pray for Salem Heights and Outward Church as they gather this morning. We pray that their songs of praise would rattle the doors of their buildings and shake cobwebs off of sluggish hearts. We pray that your word would be preached with boldness and that it would nourish your saints and call more people into your church. Let their taking of communion be a sign of citizenship in your kingdom and a commitment to your people. Father, we're excited today that we get to see the fruit of your saving work and the proclamation of the gospel in the baptisms of David and Schuyler. Lord, we pray for them as they will announce to the earthly and spiritual worlds that you are their king. Their citizenship is no longer of this world that is passing away, but of your imperishable kingdom. Give them boldness and courage as they testify to your good work in their lives. We pray that this church would be a community that would exhort them daily to follow you and to teach them to follow all that you have commanded. We ask that we would remember our own baptism into your kingdom and that we would have our faith refreshed seeing their new commitment. As we consider your word, Lord, we remember that it is inspired by your spirit. Every single passage is useful for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting us, and for training us into your righteousness. All righteousness is yours. We have none of our own. We ask that the sermon that's been prepared by our brother Hans would produce righteous, faithful fruit in our lives. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You can have a seat. You can open your Bibles to Revelation 20, 7 through 15. The Word of God is how the Lord exercises His Lordship in our lives. Amen. And so we are excited to go continue going through uh, the book of Revelation, verse by verse, and see what it holds for us. What does the future hold? As individuals and as a society, we are obsessed with this question. There is one thing we know that the future holds for all of us, and that is death. 
10 out of 10 people die. It's an amazing statistic. From magic eight balls to fortune tellers to tabloid magazines to astrology, we are obsessed with what will happen in the days ahead. And taken one step further, we are obsessed with the last things. Our society, even secular society, is obsessed with when and how the so-called apocalypse will come. And within the church, eschatology, or the study of the last things, has become such a focus that you would think that it's all the Bible talks about. In reality, even though a quarter of the Bible is in the genre of prophecy, from the point it was written until it was fulfilled, the Bible actually is relatively quiet on the detail of the eternal future, but quite clear on the major events that will occur. But what it does have to say about the last things is crystal clear and invaluable in its effect on our own walk with Christ. And that is what we will be looking at from here on out in the book of Revelation, really the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse in the Greek of Jesus Christ. From this point on, the Bible is clear, at least as clear as you can be using symbolic language, about the major events that will transpire at the end of the age we are now experiencing known as the church age. It will include resurrection, judgment, a new heaven, new earth, and eternity future with our Lord. This morning we will see the first portion of these last things, or the eschaton, which is the root of the theological discipline known as eschatology, eschaton meaning last things. And what we will see plainly in summary is the coming judgment of this present creation. The coming judgment of this present creation. The vision of John should be something that motivates us in the here and now as both individual believers and as a church as we look at this judgment. So let's jump right into our text this morning and see what Christ has to say through John and let us have ears to hear what our king is saying to his kingdom citizens. Let's look at Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15. It says there, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to, <clears throat> to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The first thing we see is a continuation of our text from last week, which flows into an unconstrained Satan leading an unconstrained humanity to final judgment. An unconstrained Satan leading an unconstrained humanity to final judgment. 
Last week, we looked at four eschatological frameworks for digesting chapter 20 of Revelation. It is a hard and difficult chapter and book to understand. And what I submitted to you is that the one view, the framework that makes the most sense from the text in Revelation is what is called amillennialism or inaugurated millennialism. If you didn't hear that sermon, if you feel behind on this, I want to encourage you to go listen to it as it's the foundation for this morning's text. And what this framework proposes is that the age that we currently inhabit is what's known as the church age, spanning from the redemptive work of Christ to his second coming. In the meantime, he is currently enthroned over his church, having initiated the first resurrection that we learned about last week, spiritually placing us with him in his kingdom. We inhabit both earth and, in a spiritual sense, heaven in the here and now. And Christ is now reigning over his people, the church, as we participate in this kingdom through our mutual submission to his word and to one another within the local church to whom we belong. And we can rejoice in the fact that physical death, therefore, has no power over us. It is merely a transition point in which we take hold of victory over the grave as Christ did in his resurrection. And so now we await the return of Christ, we await, we await physical resurrection and judgment of this current creation, which will be covered in these, uh, tech, uh, these verses this morning. And so what we see there in verses 7 through 9 is this judgment. Now throughout Revelation, there have been two things that determine the length of this perfect period of time over which God is sovereign, known as the church age, or in John's words, the thousand years. It's symbolic. And these things that determine the length of it, uh, the first thing that we learn from chapters 7 and 14 especially, is that there is a number of the elect people that God alone knows who are sealed by the Holy Spirit and have their names written in the Lamb's book of life since the foundations of creation. God knows his people. And it is these that are pictured in Revelation 6 as the martyred. You guys remember this from Revelation 6, 9 through 11. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Notice this until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, this is not saying that every Christian, every person who's a Christian, shows their Christianity through martyrdom. What this is symbolizing is the fullness of God's people, people who are persecuted in the midst of this world. In other words, the church age is the set period of time in which God's people will be ambassadors of his kingdom and proclaimers of his gospel, while the world persecutes and martyrs the church in hatred. And in so doing, in hating God, hating his people, and dismissing the gospel that is preached, the unbelieving world will be storing up wrath for itself to be poured out ultimately in final judgment. The picture of a cup being filled up to the brim until it is tipped out is throughout Revelation. And Paul, in his letters, says that during this church age, the righteous people of God will be storing up treasures in their love for one another, and the unrighteous will be storing up wrath, both for the day of judgment. Which is your life storing up? Now, when these two things reach their predetermined fullness, 
The Father God will finally determine it is time for the return of Christ and the end of the church age will come. And this is why only God the Father can determine this day. You cannot see it in the news. Only he knows the number of the elect and what the fullness of giving the rebellious creation over to itself looks like. And so when we look at the news and think, God, how can it get any worse? Well, he knows how worse it will get before he calls it good. And so in the meantime, we are persecuted to differing degrees here on earth while also existing simultaneously as conquering citizens of heaven. And so the gospel that we preach will do its double-edged work of convicting and converting the elect and at the same time hardening the hearts of the rebellious until the church age is complete. And in doing so, the deception of the adversary of God, Satan himself, is, as we saw last week, it's bound and limited by the gospel truth. But what our scripture tells us is that as the church age draws to a close, Satan will be unbound and released from his figurative chains. He will be released to do what he has always done, deceive the people of the world that are not part of the kingdom of heaven. He will deceive them, though, to one particular end, to push them into spiritual battle so that they might attempt to destroy the church and the people of the church completely. Now, this has already been pictured a handful of times in Revelation. Let's take a look at them. You can go back quickly with me. Go with me in your Bibles to Revelation 11:7, And we'll look at the symbolic picture there. Revelation 11, 7. The church here is pictured as two witnesses, the witnesses speaking testimony against the world and for God. And in 11.7 it says, And when they, the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. It will seem as though the church is persecuted almost to its destruction. Look ahead to 11.18, just a little bit further down. It says, the nation raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, that language will be, is used in our text today, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So we have this war, but then we also have the war stopped with then judgment that comes after resurrection. Notice that sequence laid out, because it's the same sequence that's recapitulated or reshown in our text today. Nations collectively raging against the church, symbolized by the two witnesses bringing the charge of the gospels against them. And then God's wrath summarily wiping out his enemies, and judgment happens. Look at 16, verses 14 through 16. 16, 14 through 16. This is another view of this recapitulated vision. 16, 14 through 16 says, For... They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Demonic deception overtakes the world and causes them to come together as a figurative mass, not an actual battle in an actual valley, but a figurative mass ready to do battle against God and his people. And if you read through verse 21, you will see what follows in the day of judgment. And then look ahead 
uh, at chapter 19 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Chapter 19, verses 19 through 20. Again, the same event seen from a different angle. That's where this fancy word recapitulation uh, comes in. Verse 19 of chapter 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Each time in each of these views of this same event, we see Satan instigating rebellion among the unbelievers of the world. We see a figurative battle about to begin and God summarily squashing the rebellion and then using that moment for his just judgment to be fully poured out. And so we see clearly that what we have before us in chapter 20 is simply that recapitulated view of these same events with a focus on the defeat of the deceiver himself, Satan. And to picture Satan and his followers' ultimate defeat, John is calling to mind the final battle of the day of the Lord as prophesied in the Old Testament, especially by the prophet Ezekiel. I know I've got you moving around a lot already, but let's go ahead and go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Ezekiel, specifically starting in, verse, or in chapter 37. And we're going to do a really quick movement through Ezekiel and then see its parallel in Revelation. And what we will see in the final weeks of Revelation is that John is running in parallel with the image, uh, imagery from the end of Ezekiel, and we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. First, we see imagery for the first resurrection that uh, was covered in our text last week. Take a look at Ezekiel 37, 10 through 14. Ezekiel says, in figurative, symbolic language, he says, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, these bones that are in this field, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, meaning the covenant people of God. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And I will bring you into the, uh, and, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The language of they lived here is the same as in Revelation 20 where it says that the New Testament saints came to life in the first resurrection. The inaugurated kingdom of the church age is symbolized in the remainder of this chapter. Through Christ, through his work on the cross, his resurrection, and his pouring out of his spirit, we have been brought to life as if we were dead bones, and now we have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You can go back and listen to the teaching from last week. So the inaugurated kingdom of the church age is shown here. But at the end of this age, look at what happens. Look at 38, 1 through 6. 38, Ezekiel 38, 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward, notice the names, Gog of the land of Magog. This is where John is pulling these names in. The chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, the prophecy against and prophesy against them, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech 
and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield-wielding weapons." He goes on, he says, Persia with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Togarmah from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Nations from the farthest corners of the earth, the four corners of the earth will gather at the incitement of the deceiver to fight against God's true Israel, his true people, the church made up of both Jew and Gentile. Now let's continue reading, recalling in mind all the imagery that Tyler showed us in the second, chapter of, uh, second half of chapter 19. Take a look at Ezekiel 38, 16 through 23, and see the battle that it shows. In 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me, when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes." Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servant, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel." The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground. And all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog and all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Brings just a warm fuzzy to your soul, doesn't it? Keep looking at chapter 39, verses 4 through 8. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort, to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is coming. It will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Friends, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you have been presented with a truth that the Bible is either craziness and myth, or what it says will happen, will happen to you one day. Judgment is coming. So you either have to believe that the Bible is insane and anyone who follows it is insane or it's truth. What are you going to do with it? Well, take all this imagery and go back with me now to Revelation. And you'll see how John is using this imagery. And he's showing the same exact events. He's showing that the true Israel of God, the church, is who will finally go through this. And in this judgment, God will finally prove true as he prophesied in Ezekiel. Look at Revelation 19, verse 15. 
that Tyler read to us a few weeks ago. From Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And then look at verses 17 through 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, small and great. It's the exact same language straight out of Ezekiel. And then look at our text from today, verse 7 of chapter 20. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, that's the hook in the nose, pulling them into battle, that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Friends, it is the exact same event. Ezekiel prophesied it. John said it will come to pass, but it will be at the end of days directly prior to the resurrection and judgment. Do you see the parallel imagery? When the church age is ended, Satan is allowed to once again deceive the nations. People groups from the far ends of the earth are deceived to gather together to fight against God's chosen people. Does anybody else watch the news and look at the deception among us and go, how are people falling for this? That's not to say today is the end, but the deception is moving, friends. And so these people are gathered together in a figurative sense to fight against God's chosen people. It's the people of the world rising up and saying, we're tired of Christianity. It is the source of our problems. And it is a large number of most of the world symbolized by the sand of the sea. And this symbolic, rebellious, deceived army is then pictured with similar language to how the Old Testament pictured people like uh, the, uh, Babylon marching over the broad plain of the earth. And they figuratively surround the people of God who are pictured here as both a camp and a beloved city. The camp is imagery that connects to what we looked at last week in Revelation 12, where the church is pictured as existing in the wilderness of exile here in the church age, but yet completely protected by God with his spirit in their midst. That sounds like the church, doesn't it? And at the same time that we are somewhat transient in this world, as if the tabernacle in the wilderness, we are also secure, as we will see in chapter 21, as the new Jerusalem, the beloved city. If you don't believe me, folks, it killed me. I had to cut out like 20 biblical references here to go back and prove this. This is who we are as the church. And this is who the New Testament pictures us as, both moving in the wilderness and yet also stable as if the New Jerusalem. And we'll see that more next week. As a result of this attempted warfare on God's people, which Revelation has pictured as lasting only a short time, God's wrath will finally be peaked and then poured out in the imagery of sending fire on Gog and Magog who stand in for all those who are part of this rebellious people group. And he summarily puts down the rebellion. The cleanup of rotting corpses is then performed by birds of the air. Violent imagery. Friends, this is violent imagery that symbolizes clearly God's hatred for the rebellion that has enslaved his creation for all of history. We see an unconstrained Satan 
will one day lead an unconstrained humanity to attempt to wipe out God and his people from the face of the earth. But all they will be doing is inviting the day of final judgment. Friends, we have no idea if we are in the last portion of that or not. We know and can see that this spirit is at work. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we can endure as the church, as we watch the world increasing in its vitriol against our God, against his gospel, and against his people. But it also means we should, in the words of the King James Version, gird up our loins <laughs> to be resilient under the threat of actual persecution, which, quite honestly, we as Americans don't even know, while we continue to live out and preach the gospel. And we can be strong in this, friends, because we know how it ends. It will seem like it's about to go really bad, and that is the exact point where God comes and says, no. And this is what we see in the remainder of our text. Let's take a look at verses 10 through 15 in Revelation 20. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, here we see the final judgment of Satan and his kingdom. The final judgment of Satan and his kingdom. To initiate this day of final judgment, we first see the adversary of God and the devil, or accuser in Greek, the serpent, or deceiver from the garden, judged and sentenced. We see him dealt with. The wording here is clunky in our English regarding the past tense of the false prophet and beast having been in the lake of fire. Uh, English adds the word, they were in the lake of fire. But it confuses the meaning. Its meaning should convey something more like the devil was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and false prophet were also thrown. This is happening at the same time as what happened at the end of, of uh, chapter 19. And here we are recapitulating the imagery from that portion of 1920, but we also have something additional here. It says, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The plain idea here is that which has been termed eternal conscious torment. In summary, this means those who are thrown into the lake of fire will experience the conscious torment of God's wrath in some capacity for an unending eternity. So friends, pause for a second and think as far out into the future as you can, and then think further out than that, and then think further out than that, and then think further out than that, and you're still not even halfway there. It stands in contrast to another idea called annihilationism, or conditional immortality, in which those in rebellion against God will have immortality withheld, and they will simply cease to exist in any capacity. 
Annihilationism teaches that the fate of the wicked will be eternal in that they will never rise again, but they will not consciously suffer for the length of eternity. Now, technically, both eternal conscious torment and conditional immortality, annihilationism, are considered within orthodoxy. So if you're a person who believes in annihilationism, technically you're still orthodox. But I would submit to you that one is far clearer in its biblical basis. Now, why do I pause and kind of go off track a little bit here to talk about this? Well, friends, we, be, we live in a world where the majority has decided that God is unjust because the fact that he would punish rebellious humanity and his enemies for eternity does not sound just in their eyes. And I fear, dear brothers and sisters, that the doctrine of annihilation has far more to do with a humanistic elevation of ourselves and our own importance and a degradation of the horrific rebellion of sin and its violence against the holy God than it has to do with biblical truth. Now, because the topic of judgment unto eternal retributive punishment is so heinous in the world's eyes and so heartbreaking in our own, I am concerned that the church has given into the idea that even though the Bible says the torment is eternal, the church is stating that it can't mean what it says. In so believing, I think the church has largely lost its prophetic witness. So what does the Bible teach on this topic? Let's take a moment and look at this. Well, first, friends, we have to acknowledge that the Bible does discuss the eternal state of the wicked often using the term destruction. For example, Matthew 10, 28 says this, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This admittedly seems like evidence of an endpoint of the wicked soul. I will admit that. And so here it seems that the effect of the punishment is eternal. They will never rise again. But the length of the punishment is momentary. And this is the position called annihilationism that is technically orthodox. And so again, if you hold that position, please hear my heart. I'm not trying to necessarily change your mind. You are in orthodox, but I don't believe it's the full biblical picture. Because this is just one of the many verses on the eternal state of the wicked. And so we should look at the rest of Scripture to interpret Scripture. So let me give you just a few things to think about as you discern this idea of what hell looks like. The first thing we need to submit to, uh, uh, need to submit to the Lord, rather, is our humanistic self-importance that says God is only good if he hates the idea of punishment. That's a humanistic idea. That's not a biblical idea, that God hates the idea of punishment. I see this all the time in new Christian parents. Oh, we don't say hate in our house. Do you guys know how many times the Bible says that God hates things and how many times he wages discipline and punishment? upon his kids whom he loves. But friends, what Scripture teaches is that God doesn't hate the idea of punishment. He hates sin, anything that goes against his character and law. And to punish those who sin is just. And not only that, it is something he glories in because he is just. Notice the wording, for example, of his judgment in Deuteronomy 28.63. He speaks through Moses. And Moses says, as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Friends, God delights in blessing, but he also delights in bringing just punishment to those that sin. 
But before you place a vindictive human arrogance onto God, which makes us recoil at his delight in bringing vindication, recognize that he is the source, definition, and seat of all justice and all goodness. This is not one guilty human unjustly holding another guilty human in contempt. This is a holy, good, and just God responding to mankind's sin, which, coincidentally, is a sin he sent his son to die for, which proves his goodness and his justice. To commit violence against him through sin is to commit the definition of injustice. And for God to be just, he must equitably vindicate his own name and character and his eternal omnipotent nature. Otherwise, he would be unjust. And to do violence to the eternally just God brings an equitably eternal consequence. The second thing I'd submit to you is Scripture is clear that the eternal state of the wicked will not just be an absence of his presence and love. It is indeed that. Second Thessalonians is clear. It is an absence of his, his blessed countenance. But it is also an active punishment. Look, for example, at Isaiah 24, 21 through 22. It says, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. That is an active verb. Third, even after Matthew 10, which we looked at a moment ago, that says destruction, Jesus gives even more clarity later in Matthew. Let's read a few verses from Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, the very thing we're picturing today in Revelation 20. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice this wording. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And friends, what does this punishment look like? Well, Revelation gives us the truth that no matter what it materially looks like, will it be actual fire like we see in a campfire? Probably not, because it also says it's also outer darkness. So what it materially looks like, we probably don't know fully. But what it will be experienced like by the wicked is conscious torment. And we know this because the word torment that we see in Revelation 20.10 is used 10 times total in Revelation, and in all of its uses, it refers to a conscious torment. Look, for example, at Revelation 14.11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And notice, they have no rest. That means they're conscious. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. No rest day or night for all eternity speaks of eternal, conscious torment. Now again, we have no idea of its physical makeup, as the lake of fire is most likely not a geographic location in time and space, but it is symbolism, as with the rest of Revelation. 
But what it is, is a state of removal from God's gracious presence and a conscious torment of his wrath. For we also see directly before this verse in Revelation 14, in Revelation 14, 9, we see another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur, notice, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. He will be present, but it will be constant eternal presence in wrath, not in kind countenance. Those in the lake of fire will be tormented eternally because they will be in a state of what theologians call eternal impenitence. People ask me as a pastor all the time, why would a good God torment people for eternity? Because they are eternally in rebellion. It might be easy to suppose that because one cannot fully see God, that once sinners see God on judgment day, they will be repentant. But there is nothing scripturally that backs this idea, friends. In fact, it is actually heresy because that would be a kind of universalism where all would eventually be saved. Scripture instead promotes the idea that mankind exists in full knowledge of God now and is rebellious in our state of original sin anyway. And that is why salvation can only be accomplished by God by changing our hearts and breaking our self-imposed deception. And so when the wicked, rebellious dead see God, they will respond as pictured in Revelation 6, asking to be crushed rather than face God's just wrath. And so their ongoing impenitence will never end, but it will go on eternally, and thus they deserve an eternal punishment of God's ongoing wrath. This, dear friends, is how grotesque and vitriolic our sin actually is. And it is against this vile background that the free gift of salvation through the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf shines so vividly. If we don't understand our sin and the eternal consequences, it diminishes the cross. One commentator puts it well when he says this, when we see the wrath of the lamb and the treading of the winepress of the wrath of God, we recoil from it rightly. But sober reflection warns us that our reaction is not to be trusted. We know nothing of the emotions proper to absolute holiness the just, merited, and inevitable final settlement between God and all that defiles and opposes. God can act only in conformity with himself in a passionate and aggressive concern for justice. Dear friends, we have to see God in his full majesty. We have to see him in the beautiful, awe-inspiring, endearing glory of his graciousness, his mercy, and his redemptive power in which he chooses to save those who deserve no pardon, and I am one of them, and so are you. But we also have to see him in the terrible, horrifying, and fearful weight of his omnipotent authority that brings just punishment upon those who have had every evidence of his existence and goodness, and yet have responded in violent and repulsive rebellion. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it is this weighty authority as judge of the cosmos he, that he created that we see clearly pictured in our section from Revelation 20. We have to understand what it says there 
in verse 10, that they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It is with that background that we then see, in verse 11, the great white throne and him who is seated on it. Here John sees a throne that is pure white, symbolizing its purity and the overwhelmingness of its supremacy. The image of the throne alone testifies to creation that God alone is pure. It says that it is a great white throne. And it's powerful enough to bring final judgment against the world that has persecuted his people. The imagery here is taken directly out of Daniel chapter 7, which we've looked at a ton in Revelation. Let's just quickly look at these two verses on the screen. In the prophecy of Daniel, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is what's happening right here. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued forth and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. You see the exact same imagery. God's divine courtroom is fully in session. Now, it's a bit cloudy as to whether or not the individual on the throne is the Ancient of Days or the Son of Man, God the Father or God the Son, but perhaps it's meant this way because Jesus is the express image of the Father in incarnate form. And so, in essence, they're both judging. And the weight of what is going on is so awesome that all of creation flees and God's holiness overwhelms the space of heaven and earth. It's interesting, when one of my children is about to receive discipline, the two others suddenly flee to the basement. Anybody else have that happen? <laughs> right? They want no part of it. And this is what all creation does. And this serves to remove the tainted old creation that was given over to sin to make room for new creation. But John is also here trying to get us to somehow conceive the inconceivable, that God is omnipresent, and fills his creation, not in a way that is beholden to it, but has authority over it. And we've seen this imagery before in various views of the great day of judgment. We saw an earthquake earlier in Revelation, unparalleled in its creation-shaking power. We saw mountains and islands thrown out of place in those same chapters. We saw the darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars falling out of their places and the sky vanishing like a scroll when it is rolled up. And as with the scene in Daniel 7... We see in chapter 20 of Revelation that books are opened. And here we get the detail of these books. The books are the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 13 and 17 spoke of this book as the place where the names of God's sealed, elect people were written since before the foundation of the world. This is a symbolic image of a written list that captures the divine mind of God who impartially chooses his people and elects us to glory based on his own grace and mercy, not on our own merit. For if it had been on our own merit like a divine, nice, and naughty list, no one would be saved. Not me and not you, because we have done violence against our God. But then there are other books that are opened, and these are symbolic of God's divine mind of omniscience and absolute knowledge. For we are told in Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's judgment language. 
And so these records, these books that are on display in Revelation 20 are symbolic of all the actions and words for which all mankind, including the elect, will be judged. Now, many are confused on this point because, unfortunately, many teach an antinomian view that faith is contrary to works. We are not judged on our works. They teach that it's just a matter of the intent of our heart and confessing Christ verbally, and we are saved as if it's a magic statement. These are part of judgment, to be sure, our heart and our mouth. But it is an outworking of our salvation that the evidence of our conversion is obvious. The book of James puts this well when he says that faith, if not accompanied by the works that show that faith, well, that faith is dead. And Paul, the apostolic champion of grace, affirms this truth when he says this in Romans 2, verses 6 through 8. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, selfish in their actions, and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now in Christ, our justification is complete in a moment and only by God's work and grace, not our works. But the evidence of that will then be a life that works its way out in sanctification. And we are not granted salvation as a result of earning God's grace through our works. But works driven by a changed heart and life that God has graciously given us is the evidence that we have been converted. And so if there is no fruit of the Spirit in your life, friend, no love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, if there is no affection for God, for His Word or His people, If you think that going to church and being part of his people is a burden and it's checkboxes, if there's no passion to love and give yourself to the church you proclaim to belong to, then friend, you must humbly admit to yourself that there might be no conversion in your heart and you are lying to yourself that you're a Christian. And no amount of white-knuckled effort will earn that conversion. Oh, I'll just be better and try harder and be more holy. Friends, that never works. Ask me how I know. (laughs) Instead, you must fall before the feet of the compassionate and merciful God who died for you and declare in prayer that he is obviously calling you to himself and so you need his graciousness to grow further in your life by breaking your heart and conforming it to his own. And so if you are conscious of this fact in your life, cry out to God for conversion for your heart and life to be changed, and he will hear because it is his grace that has initiated the work for you to even pray that prayer in the first place. John next shows that all mankind will then be resurrected, both the elect and the wicked, to face judgment. And this is captured in the phrase in chapter 20 that the sea, death, and Hades all will give up their dead. Remember that the sea is not pictured throughout Revelation as the literal large bodies of water on the earth. The sea is the seat and abode of chaos and the demonic. And so the abode of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, and all who follow them will give up their dead for judgment. And then the place that the righteous dead have been enslaved through the first physical death, death in Hades, it will give the righteous dead up for judgment as well. And Scripture tells us this will be one single resurrection for one single judgment. We see that understanding that both the righteous and unrighteous will be resurrected to an eternal state, either eternal life or eternal conscious torment, eternal damnation. 
When Paul says this in Acts 24, 15, we see the same thing. He says that these men themselves accept this truth that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. John uses language of standing before the throne were great and small. The dead, great and small. To crystallize the fact that this is all mankind. And he has used this four other times in Revelation to speak of the fullness of both the righteous and the unrighteous. But then we also know from Scripture that after this resurrection, there will be one general judgment of all humanity. Our earlier look at Matthew 25 makes this clear, but it's also clear in the Old Testament. Promises in Daniel 12:2. many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. We see this in its New Testament counterpart where Jesus says in John 5, do not marvel at this For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of the judgment. We also heard this in the earlier reading from 1 Corinthians 15. To finalize all of the judgment and bring all of God's enemies under his full authority, even the demonic backing and satanic institutions of death and Hades themselves are thrown alive into this fire. And finally, those who are not found in Christ will also be thrown into the lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, that sounds like eternal conscious torment. There will be outer darkness and the full wrathful presence of God, all the while knowing that there will be no rest, no quenching of thirst, and they will never see his glorious countenance of compassion for all eternity. Their stay in physical death was temporary. Their stay in eternal wrath and condemnation is permanent. Why, dear friends, do we mess around with sin? But thanks be to God for the grace he has shown in Jesus Christ. For it is Christ who, we were told in Revelation 1.18, has the very keys of death and Hades. And he has conquered on the cross our sin and the kingdom of darkness, and he has risen alive forevermore. His blood-bought salvation as the lamb who was slain has ransomed us from death so that we will never need fear it. Gracious Lord, please help us to grasp the agonizing terror of eternal wrath so that we might fully understand the sweetness, beauty, and miraculous nature of your gracious salvation. Amen? Amen. Now, one last point on this before we move into some application. In our text from last week, we noticed that John highlighted the first resurrection, but never noted the second resurrection. And this week, we noticed that John highlighted the second death, but never noted the first. And quite honestly, this is confusing. And I wish I had another hour, but you guys probably have to go to the bathroom and want to get to the baptism, the fun stuff. So this is confusing. But here's the key to understanding it. It's to catch our breath a bit from our heavy text today and give a sneak peek to next week where we will see this in Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea, the place of chaos, was no more. 
And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That is a breath of relief after the weight of judgment, is it not? And John is utilizing this theme that has existed since the Old Testament of the first and the second, the old and the new, the transient and the eternal. And so for the sake of time and hopefully to help us grasp this better, I tried to put a whole teaching in one graphic here. And you can take a picture and we'll cover this for, throughout the rest of the time and the rest of Revelation. Or you can go online and get it when the teaching is up. But let me just tell you what John is doing here. The first death is part of the transient old creation that is passing away. And similarly, the first resurrection is a spiritual one, as we saw last week, and it is one that is only experienced by believers, and it is for a short time. It's transient. The resurrection and judgment that we have seen today is this chronological dividing line between the two ages of creation, and from the point of judgment forward in the story, all will be eternal and final. And just as all died in the transient old order, all will resurrect in the eternal new order. But there will be a second death that is only experienced by the wicked dead, who by their sin have rebelled against their creator and redeemer. And so the old will pass away, but the new will remain forever. Amen? The new heaven, the new earth, God dwelling with his people. Friends, if you are not his, why would you not want this? I pray that each of us individually and we as a church grasp the eternal weight of this gospel that we proclaim and profess to believe. It is literally a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And it should compel us forward with a gravity and a passion to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. If you are in here and you do not know Christ, friends, I don't say this because it's my job. I am begging you to repent and believe in Jesus because he has died for you. And so, likewise, we should go out of these doors and with gravity and passion proclaim the gospel to those that are lost and dying. And the primary way we do this is in our life together as a local church. And to prayer our hearts for the miraculous nature of the baptisms we are about to witness, where two brothers are stepping out of darkness and out of death into life, let's look at one last thing. The liturgical life of the local church prepares us for the day of judgment. This morning, we have read, prayed, sung, and declared Scripture and the gospel truth. Our gathering together in the Lord's command is, in and of itself, a proclamation of the gospel miracle of being reconciled to the Father. Otherwise, friends, why would a disparate, ragtag group like ourselves get together and love one another if not for Jesus' saving work and call to be part of this church body? I always chuckle internally when, when somebody says, I just don't feel like I belong in this church. Amen. Neither do I. Neither do you. Do you know why? Because the only thing that pulls us here and unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here for the affinity of being like one another, you're going to leave because that will break. But the unity of Jesus Christ will hold you strong. And it is in that that we collectively proclaim the gospel to the world. But then today is a special day because we also get to celebrate and display the two ordinances of the New Testament church commanded by Scripture, baptism and communion. For baptism is both the rite and oath of covenant passage, 
from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from the rebellious nations to the glorious people of God. Jonathan Lehman rightly says, churches do not make people Christians. We do not save people. The Spirit does that. But churches have the declarative authority and responsibility for making public statements before the nations about who is and isn't a Christian. The affirmation we make as elders leading a congregation in baptizing and simultaneously drawing Schuyler and David into the covenant commitment to be responsible for one another's Christian walk is clearly on display in baptism. We are becoming responsible for one another. Not until we don't feel like it anymore, but until the Lord tells us that we are into eternity. And then after baptism, we will participate in the Lord's Supper together as a community in union. A community in union. Communion. Under the common lordship of Jesus Christ. And this regular weekly sign of our unity in the gospel compels us, when we falter in sin, to repent quickly so as not to be removed from that common union or from communion. And if the church does so, if the church removes a person from communion, it is out of a loving warning for the sinner, a desire for holiness in the body and to call them back, and a passion to proclaim the Lord's name as holy. With such a bleak background as judgment to hell, why on earth would we let sin linger? In so doing, we are being a local church, Again, to quote Lehman, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances, baptism and communion. Our very liturgical life is a preview of Judgment Day. For in baptism and formal membership, that is the structure for communion, We are affirming that we see the Lord has performed conversion in the heart of those who participate. And our mutual performance and submission to these ordinances and the structure behind it show that we are not our own. We have been bought at a price, and Jesus is Lord of our lives. Our liturgical life as a church is a living parable of the gospel of Jesus, the redemptive work he has accomplished in the cross and resurrection and a proclamation that a day is coming when God will resurrect and judge the wicked and the righteous. And we take this so seriously that we would rather receive scorn about how we perform the ordinances in our liturgy than to give someone in whom there is no sign of conversion false assurance that they are in Christ when in fact the evidence of their life, including the apathy with which they love the body of Christ or do not love the body of Christ, shows that they are in danger of eternal punishment in the wrath of the Lamb. But on the other side of the coin, for those who purposefully display their submission to Christ through submission to his people in the local church, the sign of baptism is a cause for celebration beyond any earthly physical celebration you can imagine. It's better than birthdays. Friends, it's better than a physical birth. It's better than when your team has a touchdown, which I know you guys celebrate, right? It's better than any celebration on earth. For in baptism, an individual is not just going through a religious ritual to make themselves feel better and pure. Like the Old Testament sign of circumcision, baptism is an entry point into covenant with God and his people. And so it is a declaration that they have been converted by Christ. It's a declaration that they know they deserve hell. 
It's a declaration that they know Christ plucked them from the fire and made them his own and adopted them into his family. And they are declaring by their submission to this specific local church and its membership that they want our help, our accountability and encouragement so that they might hear on the day of judgment, enter into my rest, my good and faithful servant. And so as Skylar and David come up on this stage, I would lay on them the loving and healthy weight of that submission, that they are submitting their very lives to Christ and to this body, and we, in turn, have a weight to bear. I would lay upon every member of this church the loving and healthy weight that you are now responsible for the eternal state of these two men. And I would lay on us the weight to take this seriously, which means that you will devote your life to the active nurturing of their faith and the faith of the rest of the members of this local body. It is in these practices of Christ's commanded ordinances that we rightly apply the weight of the word of God that we have heard today. Amen? Amen. Amen.